0: you're going to actually have to commit to this. And that's not just going, hmm, this is a pretty idea and I like it. It's actually understanding that if you say yes to this, you're going to have to say no to some other things, no to some of the stuff that you're currently doing, no to some of the ways you're currently being, no to some of the relationships or the or the nature of the relationships you're currently having. Because if you take on something that is a worthy goal, you have to disrupt some of the expectations of yourself and some of the expectations other people have of you. So you've got to kind of check whether you're up for this or not.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Michael bungay Stanya. Now, I've had Michael on before. And I wanted to get him on again because he's written another book. So Michael is probably most famous for his book called The Coaching Habit, which very quickly, seven questions, helps anybody have a coaching conversation and have a huge impact. He followed that up with The Advice Trap, which is, I guess, a whole book based on one of his premises in The Coaching Habit, which is if you're giving advice, you're not coaching. So... Those two books around how to start coaching and how to become a more effective coach are absolutely fabulous. They've had a huge impact on how I've coached clients. But his new book is called How to Begin. And this is for, if you've got a challenge you need, something you're finding thrilling, something which is important to you, you're finding it daunting. This is a book that helps you get your head around, stop procrastinating. What are you trying to achieve? What will the impact be and make some steps because if you don't start, you'll never finish. So fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it again, and I'm sure you will too. I'm Michael
0: Bungay-Stenyer. If you know me at all, you know me for a book called The Coaching Habit, which is the best-selling book on coaching and being more coach-like this century. Um, but mostly I'm a bit of a wandering vagabond. I try and write books. Um, I founded a company called Box of Crowns, which is a training company, which is, um, teaching tens of thousands of people each year to stay curious a little bit longer. And I'm an Australian living in Canada.
1: <laughs> As you gave the introduction there, there was something that we, were, we agreed what we're going to talk about, but I've just something else has crossed my mind, which is now that you're not The CEO of Box of Crayons. Did you end up in training by accident? I mean, are you, you know, are you an amazing trainer? Did you get deep joy from training? Was it a means to an end? Well, I am a great
0: facilitator. So I I cut my teeth as a consultant, really, learning how to kind of work with actually I cut my teeth in the world of new product development, which meant I actually cut my teeth doing market research, sitting down with Clusters of people in focus groups and going, Tell me about soup in your life. <laughs> well, tell me about whiskey or scotch. I mean, I literally had, in, you know, I've spent time in kitchens trying to come up with new flavors for KFC. I helped make stuffed crust pizza in a tiny, tiny way. I helped invent a really bad uh, single malt whiskey.
1: <laughs> I did that. They're all things to be proud of. No, yeah. well, none of my inventions really
0: worked, but I got pretty good at at understanding what it means to be customer led and what you create, and moving into the world of coaching and, and teaching coaching. I wasn't really expecting, but two things happened. One is it turned out having built a coach practice, I didn't love coaching. I just I didn't love I didn't love the experience of having to run a coach practice. I got a bit much. It didn't allow me to show off in front of people enough. I got a bit bit bored with people. I got a bit bored with myself. So I dismantled the coaching practice and found a source of irritation, which is how coaching was being taught in organizations. Because I'd been in organizations and I knew about change and change management because after new product development, I went into the world of organizational change. I was like, this training is terrible. I mean, a lot of most training is pretty terrible. But this I thought this was particularly egregious, some of the <laughs> things that I'd seen. So I was like, all right. And in retrospect, I can see now that I've just got those three things that you need to create a business. You've got some kind of some feeling about it. For me, it was kind of anger, and also a belief that coaching was a really powerful leadership managerial skill. I had a point of view around how it could be different, which is like you've got to make it accessible and useful and unweird for normal people who are managers and leaders not for woo-woo people who are inclined to be coaches and um there's a need for it in the market there's a there's a need to help managers and leaders be more coach-like because there really is a powerful leadership skill so i got into it like that and i do love teaching i love teaching i hate bad training and that's really helpful because the, the bar is actually pretty low for a lot of training in most organizations. I mean, it's just, it's just. Well, it's, it,
1: it seems to me that it's unmeasurable. The many of the people on the course don't want to be there. and the And the outcome is actually not an improvement in performance, but just to make people feel less shit about themselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are being played you know. because sometimes it's like we need to go through the performance of having done this training to tick some boxes and that happens up and down an organization. But, you know, great training, it actually helps the organization. It actually helps the people in the room and it's designed in a way that allows them to shape it to be their own and uses all the tricks of design and neuroscience to make it compelling. Irresistible, and I know a lot of that, so I can design training that always feels much better than anybody was expecting. (laughs) So, do I want to be a full-time facilitator teaching stuff? You know, not really. But I did spend 15 years doing a. I've 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 been in front of a lot of people in a lot of classrooms. Sometimes, you know, a keynote, and I've got eight thousand people, and I'm like, this is extraordinary. And sometimes I'm in some crappy training room in some industrial estate with, with seven of the 20 people who'd signed up for the course or who were meant to attend the course. The seven who were there were confused because they didn't realize that you could not show up, so they don't want to be there. <laughs> and yeah, and I, can, I can feel the sands through the hourglass of my life ticking away and me going, what am I doing?
1: Oh. All of that. Oh. Brilliant. So you ended up where you ended up, and then how to begin is about beginning a new chapter for you. Yeah, you know, it, it, that's your we, latest book, by the way. For those people who have no idea what what what, what yeah. So
0: I've written, I've written actually it's, the numbers increasing. I've written six or seven books now. The very f- the first mainstream book I wrote was called "Do More Great Work," which is look, how do you as an individual do more of the work that has impact and meaning, and less of all the other stuff. So it's a sort of hybrid between business and self-development. How to Begin is a bit of a nod back to that, but it's much more personal. It's about, well, Dom, the the, the story is this. I I tried to write a a different book, and uh, having written the first draft of it, I sent it out to some trusted readers. And after about two days, my friend Misha, who lives here in Toronto with me, basically called me up and went, you know, I've read the first 60 pages of your draft. It. I have no idea what it's about. It's, it's <laughs> horrible. But it's like, oh, you know, I think that's that's cruel but fair in terms of, I mean, all, all first drafts aren't very good, but not many first drafts are quite as bad as this first draft, which was pretty bad. So going through the rubble of that particular first draft, there was one phrase that I really thought had wait. And it was this, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. What I liked about that was it was about unlocking greatness, which is a kind of core theme to what I'm trying to do. How do you bring out the best in yourself and others? It was about necessary behavior change because unlocking greatness is about stepping into the next best version of who you are. And What does that mean? And doing the hard things, kind of fulfilled my need to try and encourage people to take on projects that are going to make our world a little better, whether, whether you're playing at the scale of your family or your neighborhood or your team or your organization or your community or your, or your country or your world, you know, it's like the world is amazing and also in a bit of trouble right now. So how do you get more people thinking about what's, what's a contribution? How do I give more than, rather than take from the world? And what proportion of humanity do you think do that consciously? I think it's a pretty small portion of humanity. And, um, uh, you know, it's. I mean, let's just say from side, which is Like, there's a lot of people in, in the world that just don't have the space or the resources to even be thinking about stuff like that because they're just thinking about how do I get through this next day and how do I survive? We're recording this on uh, Labor Day, and it turns out there's an air show in Toronto on Labor Day that started four minutes ago here. So, I mean, I don't, first of all, I don't get what air shows um, This is going somewhere. I don't quite sure what air shows are about because we're like, first of all, isn't it really expensive? And why are we flying fighter planes overhead? You know, I mean, it traumatizes pets and it traumatizes Syrian refugees. It traumatizes everybody, as far as I can tell. Anyway. There's a bunch of people for whom they have planes flying overhead in their lives, and it is a scary thing rather than a, a long weekend entertainment thing. And then, Dom, I just think a lot of us get kind of locked into the patterns of life, which is like, look, I'm just trying to make a good enough life for me and my family, whatever, whatever that means to you. And, you know, I think that's the way of the world. And I'm after – I mean, it's a bell curve. There's some people at one end of the bell curve who are like, look, I am all out to try and make a difference. I'm an activist. I'm a champion. I'm committed to the bigger game. I'm sure there's people at the other end, which is like, screw the world, screw everybody except me. I'm just in it for myself. But there's a bunch of people in the middle who are like, if they had the right nudges and encouragement, might be tempted to go, "How do I, how do I try and do something that's a little bigger than me? Okay. And what sort of feedback have you had? Well, I'd say the, the feedback I've had is the people who like it, like it a lot. Um, <laughs> so you, you never know, but we have, a, we have a community that we host at mbs.works called The Conspiracy. It's so called cool because the, the etymology, the kind of the root meaning of the word conspiracy is to breathe together, con, together, spire to breathe. I really like this idea of we're in this together and we're in it kind of, you know, our, our breaths are syn- syncopated in some way. So we've got like 200 people in this community and they're people who are working on their worthy goals, which is the idea I introduce in how to begin. You know, people who are figuring out how do they work on something that is thrilling for them, important for the world and daunting for them, takes them to the edge of who they are and who they've been and who they want to be. And, you know, there's people who've done some pretty amazing things already uh, in there, you know, everything from writing books to launching a memorial and a nonprofit organization in honor of a a child of theirs who had died, all sorts of great stuff.
1: Fab. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's just how many, a million copies of Coaching Habit.
0: Yeah, over that now, I've slightly lost track. It's probably I know 1.2 million copies. I, was, I mean,
1: there are how many books have sold more than a million copies? I don't know. Not, not many. It's really,
0: it's really hard to sell. It's really hard to sell. It's really hard to sell ten thousand copies of a book. And then when you think that that the coaching habits actually self-published, it's an even smaller niche of books. So. Yeah, I got pretty lucky with the
1: coaching habit. I just think the impact that you've had on people, on humanity, on people, on individuals to then go and have further impact, like that ripple, you know, it's not, it's not like one-to-one, it's sort of one-to-one-to-many. Well, you know, 20 years ago, or maybe
0: slightly less, but close to 20 years ago, I crafted a, um, a kind of pers- personal mission statement which still kind of helps me make better choices and the way i talk about it and this sounded a lot better before COVID happened was to infect a billion people with the possibility (laughs) virus yeah i know like infecting people with viruses less cool than it's ever been really in the last century but possibility is about how do you help people make bigger or braver choices about what's in front of them how do you see that hey help people see they've got choices and to make the the braver choice, the virus metaphor is a reminder for me to try and create stuff that spreads without me having to be at the centre of it. Uh-huh. And this idea of trying to, if you like, decenter myself from the work that I'm doing, so it's not reliant on me. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So. I'm it's a while. It's,
1: it's a while since people were surprised by the ability to fly air, the airplanes. Flew. Know. You know, it's like it's, it's a long time since. It's since very we needed that. Some
0: people, I guess. Um, so apologies to everybody listening for the background. The background jets, but yeah, it's like I. I have always. I'm not really interested in trying to be, the guru, the Tony Robbins. You know, who's building a brand around who I am and my own vast amounts of charisma just because i don't have teeth as big as tony robbins i'm not sure i'm not sure anybody does actually i am interested in trying to get ideas out in the world and trying to have them spread so that if you know people end up using the seven questions from the coaching habit and they've never heard of me and they've never heard of my
1: book just found it somehow i consider that a win we were talking a little bit uh before you came on just to you know that whole pulling yourself out of box of crayons and not being the CEO is part of that journey to decenter yourself.
0: Yeah, well, that is more about just trying to make sure that I'm I'm spending my life doing the work I do best. Uh-huh. And you know, when you found a company, if you're somebody like me, you don't expect it to be successful particularly. You don't expect it really to grow beyond one person. So to find myself th- three years ago in charge of a multi-million dollar company with 20 employees, I was like, I am so out of my depth there, you know, and I can, I can make it work well enough through a degree of chutzpah and tap dancing and, you know, dice rolling. but I'm not really built to be a CEO and I am built to be a, a really good teacher. You know, I'm really good at taking ideas and presenting them in a way that feels new and fresh and accessible and unweird and doable to people. And, you know, if I think about the work, the body of work I'm looking to create, it's putting ideas into the world. It's not running a company.
1: Leave that for somebody who... Who knows how to run a company. (laughs) Yeah, but it wasn't... uh, But interestingly, there's a difference between deciding that. Yeah. And doing that.
0: Yeah, and I knew that my good intentions would I would collude and undermining my good intentions because I'm like it's really hard if you're the founder of something if you started something it's really hard to give up all that that brings you it's really easy to walk away some of all of that because honestly there's some parts of the CEO role I'm like if I never do this again in my life that will be just fine I was delighted to hand that over but you know, I'm really handing over more than that when I stopped being the CEO of a company. And part of the conversation with Shannon, who is the new CEO, we, we got really clear that we wanted this to feel like she was running her company. She wasn't caretaking my company. Which means that I have to give, well, actually, it's not me giving it. We, we had to come to an agreement about, what my span of control is at box of crayons and we used a model based on uh, susan scott's book called fierce conversations she she uses a tree metaphor model four key component bits roots trunk branch twigs so twigs are things and decisions and goings on that i'm never going to hear of or know about which there's a lot <laughs> Branches are things that are important enough that I'll probably hear about it at some stage, but it might be in an update email from Shannon or it might be a a newsletter she puts out or it might be in our board meetings. Trunk decisions, of which there aren't many, uh, conversations that are hers to make, but she will talk them through with me before she makes them. So Uh kind of big strategic stuff or reorienting some key policies or whatever it might be. And then the root decisions are the ones that I get to make. And turns out that I only have two decisions I'm allowed to make about Boxer crayons. One is, do I fire Shannon or not? It's like, basically, how are you doing as the CEO? And secondly is, do I sell the company or not? Like I own the company with my wife, so we, it's out—it's ours to decide if we're going to sell it or not. That's it. So what I have to come to grips with is the understanding that Shannon can fail with this company, and I'm okay with that because it's her company, and companies fail all the time. Sometimes through negligence, lots of times just through you know the turning of the wheels of the world. And I'm at peace. They would say around look. I want this company to go on. And Shannon and I talk a long time, often about the the bigger game we're playing for this company and how we're less driven by quarterly or annual reports and we're more driven by sustainability and longevity and impact. Mm -hmm. But you know what?
1: At some stage, that company will come to an end and so it goes. And that's uh, that's very hard for people, isn't it? I mean, I, I see CEOs that I've worked with or speak with struggling with that. And that whole I like you I like the sort of tree. Yeah. And they they're up there in the branches talking about pruning and really making sure that the CEO that everybody in the organization knows that the CEO is not running the company.
0: That's right. And you know, Shannon and I hired a coach, a transition coach. Her name is Jill, and we hired her for 2 years, a year leading up to it and a year leading out of it just to help us not fall for the, for the obvious things that we would almost certainly fall for. It's very hard to shift out of it. It's hard for Shannon because, you know, my presence has a weight, has a gravity to it that distorts the space-time continuum, whatever. Because you know, when I say anything, it was like, oh, somebody write that down. Michael said it. He's the guy who wrote The Coaching Habit. He's the founder we don't even get to see him very often, so he's enigmatic and mysterious now. So if he says anything, ooh, and I'm like, okay, so I've got to be really careful about that. And Shannon has to learn how to step out of my shadow and not be influenced overly by me either. And I've just got to find other places to get the nourishment I get, right, I used to get from the work I did at Boxer Crayons. I mean, I, I, I say one other thing. I literally started my new business, MBS.Works. With no real idea what it was about, but needing to have a sandpit that I could go and play in and do stuff. Because if I didn't have that, I'd go, why don't I just go into Box of crowns and just take a look around and see if I can <laughs> help out. And, I'm, and, and that way, dragons lie there, as they say.
1: Go and find somebody to bother. Yeah, exactly. What were the things that you were entirely delighted to not ever do again? Oh, like most of it.
0: <laughs> like, honestly, I mean, most, of, I, like I am, I'm not a particularly great manager. I have my moments, but I'm not, but I, it's not something that I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm just an awesome manager. I'm, I'm not. I manage some types of people really well. I manage lots of people not that well. I'm, I'm not that interested in, in making money. So um, trying to set up a a company that is thriving by making money, I was like, yeah, fine, whatever. Don't bother me with all the details about money coming in or money going out. I'm like, that's not that great. And, you know, this year at Box of Crowns, we've just introduced a profit share scheme. So we're actually able to add a significant percent this year because we had a good year, a significant percentage of people's salary onto their salary And we can do that in part because Shannon brought in an actually great finance person and they're actually managing the money in a way that is sensible. So we can actually point to a profit and go, we've made a chunk of cash. That's great. I was like, make money, don't make money, whatever. (laughs) It's like terrible. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, so I have some strengths, which is like articulating ideas and making them accessible. And some I'm okay with some of the marketing stuff. And I'm, I can get away with doing some sales stuff some of the time because I ask questions m- mostly. But most of that job, I'm just not that good at or and or
1: that interested in. Where did you end up with, um, in terms of how to begin, What did you manage to sum up succinctly for people how to find that purpose? Because I think you said to me the last time, I can teach you how to be a coach in 30 minutes. It's not very complicated.
0: I can explain the principles of being a coach in in two minutes. (laughs) It's like, stay curious a little bit longer, hold fierce love for the people you're working with. And, you know, if you can do that, honestly, you're going to be a great coach for people. (laughs) Because fierce love means that you are committed to who they are and their success. And a fierceness means you're not going to be nicey-nicey about it. You're going to do what needs to done to... Lay the the challenge down. You can do that and bring a genuine curiosity to the way you interact with that person with some good questions. You're already in the top quartile of being a great coach in in my guess. I guess the three insights I've got around trying to figure out, you know, the bigger goal. Because it's about goal setting, but it's not about kind of can I go to the gym a little bit more often? It's more about to use that metaphor that we probably all heard, which is like, I'm trying to put stuff into a jar. You need to start with the big rocks and then the smaller rocks and then sand and whatever else. I'm like, we're trying to figure out some of the big rocks here. And I'm going to say that the three insights I've got is first of all, let's say four insights. First of all, understanding that the best of goals create a tension between thrilling, what lights you up important, what gives more to the world than it takes and daunting, what, helps you learn and grow and stretch. And if you can optimize whatever it is for you that's thrilling, important and daunting, you're going to have a powerful goal. Second key insight is the first time you write down that goal, that's not the goal. That's just, <laughs> that's just the crappy first draft. And it's a really good place to start, but it's like writing a book. It's always a bit not quite there. And the process of iterating and fine-tuning and tinkering with your goal, so it creates a kind of compelling internal and external pull, that's going to make it more likely you've found and you've, you're starting something that really matters to you. So let's say you've now go, I've got something that I'm pretty excited about. Now the, second, the, the third insight is you're going to actually have to commit to this. And that's not just going, hmm, this is a pretty idea and I like it. It's actually understanding that if you say yes to this, you're going to have to say no to some other things, no to some of the stuff that you're currently doing, no to some of the ways you're currently being, no to some of the relationships or the, or the nature of the relationships you're currently having. Because if you take on something that is a worthy goal, you have to disrupt some of the expectations of yourself and some of the expectations other people have of you. So you've got to kind of check whether you're up for this or not. And then the final insight is it's not straightforward once you get going. <laughs> it's like I had this idea, you know, you cross the threshold. And it's a far cry from like typing an address into Google Maps and hoping that it's like, you know, a 17-minute journey to get to your destination. It's more like you are navigating through unknown terrain. And if you're navigating through unknown terrain, you've got to – move slowly you've got to stop and reorient you've got to figure stuff out you'll go through some dead ends and have to back out and try some other stuff it's not a clean linear journey it's a explorate it's kind of exploring forward into the unknown a little bit but that's it that's the whole book in a nutshell those four key insights
1: and what's your what's your goal
0: so one of the kind of deeper dives in the book is to say that a worthy goal will often have or often have a, a weight on one of three different things. It'll either have a weight on a project, like the work that needs to be done. So, for instance, in the past, I've talked about a worthy goal is writing a book, uh-huh. and I am and I am right in the middle of writing a book right now, right in the middle of a kind of third draft of uh, the, the next book. But that's not my worthy goal. A second element that's part of a worthy goal and you might put an emphasis on it, is the nature of a relationship that you've got i want to be a better leader or father or son or whatever it might be but you know the focus is really on that other person and trying to reorient and re- redesign and redefine that relationship and that's not what i'm doing at the moment either the third and i think probably deepest element of thinking about a worthy goal is your own patterns of behavior in other words who are you (laughs) and how are you showing up and how do you shift some of the ways that you're showing up and that's what i'm trying to make my worthy goal about so i'm trying to be a writer that is my worthy goal to be a writer now that's confusing for a lot of people because they're like aren't you that already (laughs) yeah exactly aren't you that already (laughs) haven't you just been spent 40 minutes talking about all the books you've written? I'm like, I have. But I would say that having got seven books out in the world, that makes me an author, not a writer. Uh And I might be splitting hairs, but it works for me. An author is somebody who gets books out in the world. And I am definitely that. But a writer is somebody who orients the way that they design their day around writing. Uh-huh. Around doing the stuff that nourishes you, so that you can find stuff out, and doing the stuff that is actually putting words on paper on a regular, you know, daily basis. And I'm not yet that. I have bursts of of doing that. So the last month or so has, I've been writerly because I'm like I've got some deadlines and I'm <laughs> way behind, so I'm having to you know do hard yards to get stuff written. But mostly I still think of designing my days around kind of putting writing in around all the other stuff I'm trying to do. Right. And just like stepping away from being the CEO of Box of Crowns was complicated, so is stepping away from being a kind of, let's call it an entrepreneur and becoming a writer is complicated as well. There's some bits I'm delighted to step away from And there's some bits I'm more entangled with than I realized. And so I'm finding it harder than I thought to shift that way of seeing myself and who I am.
1: It's interesting. That whole um, thinking of, you know, I I was thinking about other bits of sort of change and habit that people often try to do, you know, like I want to be fitter or I want to be thinner or both. And I think often that having a vision of yourself about what the what your future self looks like yeah and then going okay, well, if I was a writer, what would I do? And you wouldn't be fitting it in around the other stuff. so you've got you got to go, okay well, I'd be I don't know four hours a day like my job is as a writer. so how what what does my calendar look like? Exactly. And what have I said? You know, what commitments have I made?
0: and you know it's you're right. it's very powerful to to spend some time really imagining what that kind of future self looks like. But it's also you really have to figure out how to calm down the shouting, nagging, tugging kind of present self that keeps distracting you away from that future self.
1: Well, it's and it's the habits you get into. I've had a number of conversations with CEOs recently and one guy said that he didn't have time to go swimming every day before he went to work. So we went through his diary and we found that only 20% of what he spent his time doing each week actually could only do- be done by him and the other 80% right. could be done by other people. Yeah. So I said, so it's not the time thing. Yeah. And he admitted it wasn't, the t- and in the end he admitted it wasn't the time thing. It was his perception of how his team would view him right? if he took time off to go swimming during the day. And so it's, it's his perception of, it's how he sees himself and how other people see him, and and if he could change that, then he would have time to be strategic and do the M and A work that he wants to do, but doesn't have time to do. Which is which is actually more critical to his business than going swimming. But the swimming is just a uh, one of the many things he's not spending his time doing.
0: But you know, you can only have compassion for that person because we've all had that same experience. Which is you know, I've got forty things on my to do list today. I've crushed the 37 minor tactical things that don't matter that much (laughs) all in an effort to avoid the three important things that only I can do that I'm getting paid for that involve me kind of stepping into the unknown and wrestling with the hard things and making people raise their eyebrows and go, what the hell are you doing? All of that stuff is the hard, interesting stuff. And we're wired to try and avoid it.
1: Of course we are. Well, sometimes... It's hard, but not interesting. Sometimes it's the stuff that actually we shouldn't be doing because actually it somehow ended up on our jobs in our job spec. Yeah. But we're shit at it.
0: You know, I've got my, my team years ago gave me a, a Dilbert cartoon <laughs> plastered on a mug. And he got the pointy head CEO. <laughs> and he's saying to, is it Catbird or Dogbird, the HR consultant? I, I need somebody to do execution so I can focus on strategy and dogmat goes, okay, we can do that. And then the pointy haired boss goes, and I need to hire somebody to do strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that, that actually turned out to be a pretty accurate. <laughs> 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 yeah,
1: so. But it's, uh, there was a, there's a McKinsey study looking at CEOs in flow. Mm. Or executives in flow. So if your job lines up with what you're great at, they found that those CEOs were 500% more productive. So 5X, they'd have done by Monday, Monday evening what the rest of their colleagues will do by Friday right? because they didn't procrastinate on the things that needed doing because actually the things that needed doing were a great fit for them. And it's a, just the whole world, most of the world seems to be in either through... I don't know, self delusion. You know, well the the whole thing about being promoted to being a manager is a route forward. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to doing what you're good at and don't be a manager actually if if you don't want to be a coach, don't be a manager.
0: Yeah. Well, what you've got is these competing forces, which is what the organization needs and what you're best at and what you need to do. And part of the challenge is it is true that the organization needs stuff from you, which is not going to be flow stuff work. It's also true that the organization doesn't always know what it needs and often has its head up its own backside. <laughs> and there's just a whole bunch of things that everybody's like, the organization needs this. And it's a really good question to go, is do we really? <laughs> or Are we doing this out of momentum or guilt or just because n- nobody's thought to say, wait, why are we even doing this? So it's, it's, I think it's a tricky thing to navigate, but in all of this, I'm like, if you can just get to a point where you stop and you go, I mean, I have a simple little model that I, I teach occasionally. It's called the I care, they care matrix. So I drew a little box and cause I was a consultant. I can, you know, it's always about the two by two matrix. So box, put a cross through the middle of it so you've got four squares. And along the bottom is the, the phrase, I care, and high and low. And then the vertical axis is they care, high and low. And they is your boss, or even better, I think your boss's boss. And now it's like map what you do onto this matrix. So if you're lucky, you've got a bunch of things in the they care, I care, top right box And that's great because that's your CEOs in flow, which is like, this is what the organization demands of me. And this is what I love doing. So you're like, great. (laughs) The more you have in there, basically, the more engaged you are in your work at the moment. Then there's a bunch of stuff that's in the they care. Your boss's boss cares about it. And boss's boss just makes it a little bit more strategic as to what you're thinking. Your boss's boss cares about it, but you don't care about it. So, the question you to ask yourself there is, well, how do I, what's the most efficient way of me doing this? And what can I cut out? And what's the standard this needs to be delivered at? Because you're probably over delivering against actually the required standard. And can you delegate it? Can you shrink it? It's all about going, it has to get done. It doesn't necessarily have to get done by me, but I'm kind of responsible to have this thing as completed. So how do I do this in the most efficient way possible? Then there's stuff in the one of the other diagonal boxes, which is you care about it, but your boss's boss doesn't care about it. In other words, you just lights you up, but nobody cares. Nobody thinks it's important.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so sometimes it's like, dude, you're going to have to make this a side hustle or a hobby. So this is not a thing for work. But often it's about being political and going, how do I make the people care about this? How do I reframe this in a way that it actually speaks to what they care about so they will care about it? And then if you're unlucky, you've got a bunch of stuff in the, I don't care about it, and I don't think anybody cares about it. <laughs> and that's the stuff where you're like, how do you stop doing that as soon as you can?
1: Yeah. and I, Well, I do a love and loathe list, which ends up with something similar. And it, but it, what I'm amazed by is that they don't care, I don't care, or my loathe list. There's stuff in there. And nobody sat there going, until you ask them to write it down, it hasn't occurred to people that they could get a job upgrade. Right, because I said we'll pick one and say in the next ninety days. So we're going to come back in ninety days. Let's get it off the list. You've just you've just made your life better. Well, you know, one of the great
0: forces of change, one of the great underestimated forces of change, is stopping stuff. You know, as human beings, we're wired to start and to add. And there's good research. I mean, the um, what's his name, the guy who wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow,
1: Daniel Kahneman.
0: Yeah, Dan Kahneman said, look, I think knowing how to hit the brake is actually the most powerful force of change and most of us pump the accelerator instead so it's a really key thing which is like what if we want this to be different what do we stop doing and let's just yeah. spend a bunch of time figuring that out first gotta have some
1: space yeah. can't be over
0: yeah sometimes it's not even about trying to create more space it's just stop doing the stuff that you shouldn't be doing <laughs> just eliminate all the the bollocks.
1: Oh, you know that you know the one that you said I care they don't care. Yeah. Right? That it'll be there. Right? Cuz you're you you're scratching your itch or as you say it's a vanity project or it should be a side hustle or but you're not getting paid to do that cuz they don't care. It's not it's not in the company's best interests. But that's where you're getting your joy. <laughs> right, exactly. So the question
0: then is like you're getting something out of this. So how are you going to how are you going to keep getting it in a way that either is productive and useful for your organisation, or is nothing to do with your organisation and is productive and useful for you?
1: Yeah, it's well, it's interesting. One of our clients pre COVID was already fully remote. Yeah, and so they said we hire people who don't seek community from work. Uh huh. Right. Uh, and, so, and so it's been interesting then to get into a COVID hybrid, back to the office, right? Well, the people who don't want to come in are definitely not seeking community from work versus the people who are in getting communityed up. Yeah, exactly. Can you say what the new project's about? Broadly, you know, it's about how do you
0: improve working relationships? Mm-hmm. You know, there's um, all the kind of buzz around quiet quitting at the moment. And I just read an HBR the Lingering,
1: article. I think it's called, isn't it?
0: <laughs> well, I just read an article by uh, uh, Folkman and Zenger, uh, Joe Folkman and Jack Zenger, who are such a great resource for stuff because they just have this huge database, which they then just kind of cut in interesting ways and produce actually solid research-based insights. And they're like, honestly, Quiet Quitting is nothing new. We found a new title for it, but people have been kind of, opting out or working through all or whatever.
1: Turning up and getting paid, get doing just enough not to get fired forever. Yeah, exactly.
0: And their point of view, which is like, you know, it's actually more to do, it's more to do with how's your manager doing in making you care about this stuff? And, you know, we've all heard that phrase, people join companies, but quit managers. And I'm like, so how do I make it less like, how do I give managers more ability to build stronger relationships, so fewer people quit. So that's what I'm trying to
1: figure out. Very good. I'm not going to ask you what you know now you wish you'd known earlier because people can go back to a – well, I could ask you and you could see whether you give the same answer. Right, right. (laughs) Well, what do I know now that I didn't know before?
0: Honestly, these days my memory is so bad that almost everything I discover, I'm like, I don't think I've ever ever known this before. (laughs) You know, I have a I have an ideas file. Every time I get an idea for something, I'm like, oh, that's cool. I write it down and I throw it there because I know that in the cold light of 30 or 60 or 90 days later, it'll look different. And every time I pull out the idea file and go through it, I discover I've basically written down the same idea 73 times. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm not sure.
1: Uh, well what uh what have you been reading? Or What's a uh, recent additions to your bookshelf that people should uh, pick up and have a flick through?
0: Here's a here's a book that I think is terrific. It's called High Conflict. So you can see I've been reading it in the context of this: How do you build better relationships? By Amanda Ripley, and she is an outstanding writer. I mean, she's just got she's just got a whole bunch of journalistic brilliance and vim and vigor around this, and she's done a bunch of really great on the ground research around you know going to columbia and going to the gang lands of chicago and going to other places just to go how do you get entangled in high conflict that conflict where you're like how do we even get out of this and what does it take to understand that and how do you de-escalate that and i think this is just an excellent excellent read fab yeah i'll go, I'll go and get that
1: what else you got anything else Well,
0: yeah, the other one is a bit (laughs) weird and quirky, and I've forgotten the name of the author and the title of the book, but it's amazing. (laughs) Hang on, let me go to Amazon and find it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's got a white cover, (laughs) but it's it is it is a book about John Donne, who is a uh, Renaissance poet, kind of was writing around the about the same time Shakespeare was writing and um, it's by an Oxford scholar. The word infinite is in the title, but what's cool about this writer is she's written a ton of or YA kids books, which are brilliant. Now, my wife did a PhD on John Donne, and when I went to Oxford, I was at the college that John Dunn went to, and part of my ability to woo her was being able to go, look, I'm at the college John Dunn went to. And she's like, John Dunn's my favorite poem. And I'm like, I can quote you bits of John Dunn. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> this relationship is off to an outstanding start. So it's Infinite Something, a biography of John Donne by a, a British woman. I have none of the details, but can recommend it thoroughly. I can see you're kind of <laughs> searching
1: for it a little bit. It's brand new. So it's like less than six months old uh we'll see if we can find it or you can find it and ping me a note we'll put it in the show notes i'll do that i I don't think i was i haven't found it immediately
0: to to everybody listening now you know you need to read the show notes to find out what this
1: serious
0: (laughs) is if you're actually interested in reading about john dunn who really is one of the most interesting people that's ever lived he's a fascinating guy and brilliant brilliant oh excellent well it's
1: absolute pleasure having you on again lovely it's lovely to be send me back you'll be able to catch the rest of the air show maybe you know (laughs) they've they've gone nicely quiet
0: but this it's supposed to go for another two hours so i might uh, here here comes a plane now (laughs) Um, yeah i'm probably going to uh pack pack my laptop and go somewhere north and uh find a time to carry on writing my book well
1: michael it's been an absolute pleasure thank you